As angry mobs armed with profane placards shouted outside the family homes of Supreme Court justices, I thought of Teddy Roosevelt, who once said, the most practical kind of politics is the politics of decency. Well said. There's nothing practical in the veiled threats of these abortion activists. There's only a want of decency and a conspicuous want of sense. I don't begrudge sincerely held beliefs, but our actions define us, not our beliefs. Zealous ideology is a poor substitute for civility. The issue here is not free speech, mind you. The protesters have every right to voice their grievances against the government. But an appropriate time, place, and manner should be honored. Raucous and rude demonstrations at the threshold of someone's home is an affront to ordinary human respect. Targeting Catholic churches with harassment during Sunday worship services, that's repulsive by any standard. President Joe Biden has had ample opportunity to condemn these brazen acts of intimidation, but refuses to do so. Never overestimate Joe Biden's sense of decency. He's proven time and again that he is morally bankrupt. He has chosen to side with liberals who celebrate these outrageous personal and religious attacks. A true leader connects with people. He doesn't incite their hatred. Biden has also forsaken any attempt to denounce the person who leaked the draft of a Supreme Court opinion that's on course to overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that granted pregnant women the right to an abortion. Regardless of where you stand on that issue, protecting the integrity of the nation's highest court, that's vital. Predictably and shamefully, Joe Biden has chosen to join the rowdy mob that wants to tear it down. Our Constitution enshrined the unalienable rights of man that are based on principles of freedom, compassion, and understanding. They're foundational to the great American experiment. Decency is at the core of our democracy. It's the beacon that guides us. But our current president places partisan political gain above all else. In so doing, Joe Biden favors the politics of rage over earnest dialogue and decency. Attorney, Fox News legal analyst, and two-time New York Times bestselling author, this is The Brief with Greg Jarrett. Watching the news, seeing the horrors around our nation and beyond, the suffering in Ukraine, those left behind in Afghanistan, and here at home, parents trying to feed their kids and fill their gas tanks. Well, I have a warning for you. Inflation and tax hikes are Biden's only way out of our $28 trillion federal debt. If you want to protect your hard-earned money, your IRA, your 401k or savings, you can do that with physical gold and silver. Call now, 
800-855-0767 to get your free gold IRA kit. That's right. Call 855-665-0767 and my friends at Gold Co. will give you up to $15,000 or more in free silver with a qualified account. Gold Co. has helped thousands of Americans protect their retirement against inflation and tax hikes and the uncertainty of this economy. Protect yourself and your family. Call 855-665-0767 now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. In his inaugural address, Joe Biden promised to end the uncivil war of political discourse in America. He vowed to be a uniting healer. It was a sham. His presidency has accomplished the exact opposite. America is now more divided than ever, and Biden is responsible. On every issue, he has chosen to gin up anger and discontent on race, voting laws, immigration, parental rights, gender identity, and now abortion. You'll recall that Biden sent the FBI to go after parents as domestic terrorists. He called Georgia's election bill the resurrection of Jim Crow, and he incited racial animus with this shameful speech. I ask every elected official in America, how do you want to be remembered? At consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? Thanks to Biden's demagoguery, America is a political powder keg. He continues to light the fuse. After the U.S. Supreme Court draft opinion was leaked, Biden engaged in blatant fear-mongering by stating that the court would soon outlaw contraception, interracial marriage, and gay marriage. And then he took it a step further by asking, quote, what happens if states change the law saying that children who are LGBTQ cannot be in classrooms with other children? What are the next things that are going to be attacked? End of quote. You know this. It's utter nonsense. But Biden doesn't care. He seeks to agitate and inflame by deception. Justice Samuel Alito, who penned the draft opinion, specifically discounted the impact on other cases because those rights derive from other guarantees in the Constitution, such as the Equal Protection Clause. Moreover, those other protected rights are deeply embedded and universally accepted, unlike Roe v. Wade. By contrast, the Roe decision was based on an imaginary right to privacy that can be found nowhere in the Constitution. It's not in the text, the logic, reasoning, or even the understanding of the Constitution. Justices have spent nearly 50 years struggling to defend the indefensible. By finally correcting the wrongfully decided Roe v. Wade case, the high court is not ruling that there will be no abortions in America, not at all. The justices are simply stating that it's none of their business. Instead, what they're saying is 
This is the business of democracy. If the people want a right to abortion, or if they want to ban or restrict abortions, that's the job of their elected representatives. Congress could codify such rights in federal legislation, or lawmakers could do the same in their respective states. If enough Americans agree that the Constitution itself should address the issue of abortion, a constitutional amendment could be passed. But that hasn't happened over the last half century for one very simple reason. The votes are not there to pass such a law on the federal level. But it's not up to the U.S. Supreme Court to do what the legislative branch has failed to do or cannot do. That fundamental fact did not stop Vice President Kamala Harris from expressing her contempt for the Supreme Court. How dare they tell a woman what she can do and cannot do with her own body? How dare they? How dare they? The Supreme Court's power to decide such matters is found in the Constitution itself and reinforced by the landmark decision of Marbury versus Madison. Harris might want to read both those documents. She obviously overlooked them in law school. And perhaps she actually learned something instead of deceiving her audience with an abundance of ignorance. Harris is not the lone ranger. Other Democrats in Congress are equally oblivious. Representative Rashida Tlaib, a member of the squad, who clearly knows nothing about the law or the Constitution, stated with absolute certainty that the Supreme Court did not have the legal authority to overturn Roe because, presumably, it had become an established precedent. Here's a quick lesson for the clueless Tlaib. Just as the court had the power to render its poorly reasoned decision 49 years ago, it also has the authority to reverse the decision it now believes was mistakenly made. Precedents are fine until they're not. That's not a novel concept. The U.S. Supreme Court has overturned its own constitutional precedents more than 145 times. That number reflects how many times the court has made mistakes, admittedly so. The Supreme Court is composed of learned lawyers, yes, but in the end, they're just people. They are susceptible to making errors because, well, they're as fallible as the rest of us. The court should never abide by an erroneous decision simply to justify the legal principle of precedence known as stare decisis. It is always incumbent on the high court to reconsider past decisions and, if necessary, right a wrong. If it were otherwise, we would still be functioning under the infamous Dred Scott decision that deprived African-Americans of constitutional rights. Plessy versus Ferguson, another disgraceful decision approving racial segregation, would still be the law of the land. Plessy stood intact for an agonizing 58 years before the Supreme Court finally struck it down in Brown versus Board of Education. Other bad decisions stood even longer 
Erie Railroad versus Tompkins. That one lasted nearly 100 years until the high court came to its senses and reversed itself. If far-left politicians had a greater understanding of the Constitution and Supreme Court history, they would better serve their constituents. But it still wouldn't halt the anger and the incitement that has, sadly, become an all-too-frequent feature of the Democratic Party. When abortion activists threaten Supreme Court justices at their own homes and attempt to bomb or burn right-to-life buildings, they are taking cues from prominent Democrats who have employed ugly rhetoric that approaches the boundary of violent acts. You cannot be civil with a political party that wants to destroy what you stand for, what you care about. But I like to debate this gentleman. And I said, no, I said, if we were in high school, I'd take you behind the gym and beat the hell out of him. You got to be ready to take a punch. You got to be ready to throw a punch. You get out and you create a crowd. And you push back on them. And you tell them they're not welcome. Everyone should take note of that on both levels, that this isn't, they're not going to let up and they should not. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. Get up in the face of some Congress people. It does you any good running away from Donald Trump. I think you need to go back and, and punch him in the face. How dare he say the things he does? Of course I want to punch him in the face. Right. Yes. Yes. I have thought an awful lot about blowing up the White House. When was the last time an actor assassinated a president? <laughs> but Michelle Witt says that, you know, when they go low, we go high. No. no. When they go low, we kick them. Joe Biden ceded power to the lunatic fringe on the left. Then he joined the chorus. In his speeches, he has demonized his political opponents as enemies of the state. As he ramped up fury over the reversal of Roe, Biden said, quote, The MAGA crowd is really the most extreme political organization that's existed in American history. In one short statement, Biden vilified more than 70 million Americans who voted for his opponent. It was reminiscent of Hillary Clinton's demeaning remark that half of Republicans are deplorables. It is a pathetic testament to Joe Biden's lack of decency. Joining me now to talk about it is Horace Cooper, senior fellow with the National Center for Public Policy Research and a legal commentator. He's taught constitutional law at George Mason University and is author of the book, How Trump is Making Black America Great Again, and he's uh, just about to submit a manuscript uh, for the next book. So, Horace, thanks so much for being with us. Good talking to you. I- I- let me begin with what's happening outside the homes of conservative Supreme Court justices. I-, I must say I find it deeply troubling, as many do, that abortion activists doxed the justices publishing their home addresses and exhorting demonstrators to harass and intimidate them where they live with their families. 
uh, you know, other activists have taken to social media and, and actually encouraged uh, acts of violence uh, against them and violence against any right to life individual. It's reprehensible in my judgment, but what's your reaction? I'm greatly disturbed and troubled as well. Uh, this is the very opposite of the kind of thing that we anticipated when the left talked about what they have made up. I call it the fake charge that white supremacy is the number one uh, domestic problem in America. If we had had a conversation in which uh, the Proud Boys were doxing uh, maybe uh, the the, uh, Speaker of the House's address or uh, Vice President Kamala's uh, personal residence when she's not at the Vice President's residence, I'm clear of what we would hear and the condemnations that would flow. But apparently, it is only a one-way street. This is dangerous. This is actually disgusting in the sense that there has been no leadership from this White House and no willingness for the White House to calm down, to de-escalate the kind of behavior that we are seeing. No one, no one uh, is against the idea that if you're unhappy with a government policy, that you may not appear in a legal and lawful way to express your disagreement. This is beyond that. And as I said, if the roles were reversed, we would see arrests already. Yeah. Equally disturbing to me, but not surprising, quite frankly, is that the Attorney General Merrick Garland won't do anything about it, won't lift a finger. Forget that state law, for example, in Virginia, where a couple of the justices live, um, is very specific. It's against the law to demonstrate outside someone's home and under federal law to intimidate a a Supreme Court justice or any federal judge with the intent to pressure and harass uh, with respect to a pending court decision. That's also against the law. But but Merrick Garland won't do anything. I, I have to think that he would do something if people were protesting outside uh, Stephen Breyer uh, and his home or Sonia Sotomayor or Elena Kagan, but because it's conservative justices, he won't do anything about it. What do you think? Well, see, that's what's so dangerous about this. Um, the rights that we as Americans have are predicated on the notion that as individuals, all of us are going to be considered equal before the law. When Washington decides that it is going to pick and choose who it will hold accountable and who it will not, then we get into this dangerous world of who is in charge in Washington, and that determines who gets the freedoms and who gets the rights. That's the exact opposite of a rule of law regime. Uh, Mr. Garland was considered for a vacancy on the Supreme Court. That opportunity turns out, if this behavior is a manifestation of his unwillingness to be resolute when it comes to enforcing the law, this is a telling statement 
tell, letting Americans know that we sort of dodged a bullet by not having someone this unprincipled hold this position. You know, I watched Garland during his confirmation hearing, and, you know, I knew of his resume, which is very impressive. But I got to say that his performance in the confirmation hearing uh, was incredibly unimpressive. Uh, I mean, I I hate to use the word dense, but he, he, he just didn't seem capable. And I thought at the time... Uh, my goodness, uh, good thing the guy doesn't have a life seat in the United States Supreme Court. I mean, this is the same guy who was sicking the FBI on parents uh, and treating them as domestic terrorists. But let me move on just a moment. What bothers me so much, in addition to Garland, is that the president of the United States won't condemn uh, what's happening outside the justices' home nor will he denounce the leaker who violated uh, a variety of laws, the crime of theft, uh, purloining or stealing a government document and converting it to your own use or the use of somebody else. That's straight out of the embezzlement statute, crime of of obstruction, uh, trying to interfere or unduly influence a pending proceeding in federal court. There's conspiracy to defraud and the crime of computer computer fraud. None of this is being examined by Merrick Garland's Department of Justice or, you know, President Biden. Uh, I, I don't understand. Do you? Well, I don't understand. First, let's start with the president. Um, it would have been quite straightforward for the president to say that this is not the appropriate way to respond to the operations and actions of our Supreme Court. We don't hack. We don't steal. We don't purloin. We don't actually violate that deliberative process. That's what the president should say. And the president should say that emphatically as a way of steering the behavior of the people who say they are fans. We're all citizens of these United States, but there are folks who say that they are big supporters of this president. And as a consequence, he can influence their behavior. The other thing that he should say, as he's unequivocally declared that his son hasn't violated any law, hasn't broken, uh, violated any statutes or broken any laws, even though an investigation is ongoing, how is it that he's comfortable doing that, that clearly interferes with an investigation? But here, even before an investigation has occurred, he's unwilling He won't speak. He is silent and he is tacitly sending a signal to his supporters that this behavior is appropriate. I am told by this White House that they ask that those protesters and uh, demonstrators that did more than a billion dollars worth of damage, destroyed property, caused the lives of law enforcement to be injured, harmed, or even dead, dying of, that he said he did not support this behavior. It was a muted opposition to this bad behavior. Here, we're not even getting muted opposition. We're getting no opposition. 
we saw how serious the consequences were when the leaders of the left were silent. And now, while holding the office of presidency, his silence, I think, is even more damaging. Yeah, you're making a comparison to the George Floyd uh, protest that turned so violent with arson and theft, flash mobs, uh, vandalizing stores and, and stealing goods, beating uh, police officers, setting their vehicles on fire. Uh, and you're right. The response by Joe Biden was tepid. Uh, Kamala Harris seemed to encourage it. Absolutely. And, you know, it comes back to the inauguration address of Joe Biden in which he vowed he was going to be a unifying healer. He he said he was going to put a stop to the uncivil war between uh, blue versus red. Isn't it true, Horace, that he has done just the opposite? He has ginned up anger and division on everything from race to voting laws to immigration, parental rights, gender identity, and now abortion. He's torquing up the fear. This president has the what I would call the reverse Midas touch. Um, certainly, he said while campaigning, Again, in a muted way, mostly, as some critics say, from his basement. But he claimed that he was going to be a uniter. He claimed that he would bring America together. And he used a significant portion of his inaugural address to make those statements. The problem is that actions speak louder than words. Within moments of heading up to uh, Pennsylvania Avenue to the White House, he started issuing executive orders that were unbelievably removed from the mainstream of America. And those policies have been extremely divisive, whether we're talking about energy, whether we're talking about COVID mitigation, um, any manner, uh, transsexual, the process has been rather than seek out the mainstream middle ground, he has veered extremely sharply to the left. It is remarkable how surprised this White House is that the American people are rejecting it. This president is dropping faster and more substantially in approval by mainstream America. Young people are unhappy. The Hispanic community is unhappy. Even black Americans are finding themselves less willing to support this administration. And it's because of this sharp veer away from the mainstream. The problem, as I see it, is this president, his impulse isn't to the center, and he has surrounded himself with people who don't have that impulse. I actually have no idea where our attorney general comes down on these policies. What I see, however, is that he hasn't been a moderating influence. His Department of Justice seems to be even more motivated to push to the left than even the policies of this White House. So you find yourself in a situation 
where the American people are rejecting, even if sympathetic to a more liberalized abortion policy in America, they are rejecting doxing. They are rejecting this, uh, what is called protest that risks family members of members of the court. And they're rejecting this idea that you can break into our most sacred institution of our our court system and take from it draft um, um, versions of opinions and release that in a way that is designed likely to influence the outcome of these decisions. Why have a court if we can't count on the court itself to be able to adjudicate disputes? Why would this president, why does the Department of Justice sit idly by or tacitly encourage unfairly influencing them in the way that they have? You know, I mentioned obstruction uh, before, and I mean, the statute is pretty clear. Anyone who corruptly, meaning steals a document, uh, attempts to exert undue influence or impede uh, the due administration of law in a pending court proceeding is guilty of obstruction, 18 U.S.C. 1505-1507. So if it can be shown that the leaker's intent was to gin up public outrage to affect the Supreme Court's final decision, then the requirements of the criminal statute have been met. Now, we don't know who the leaker is, so we don't know the intent. Uh, but I, I think the opposite effect uh, will, will prevail because Clarence Thomas, uh, among others, has said, you know, the court won't be bullied. Pressure tactics will not work. And I think he's right. This will only steal the resolve of those justices who had, in the draft opinion, rendered their decision. You agree? Well, I do agree with that. But it, it is troublesome to me that we have to reach this point. Again, our system is supposed to be predicated on a theory of how one handles a court proceeding. The judge is supposed to act in an impartial and dispassionate way. If what we are seeing is the kind of mayhem and the kind of anarchy that is occurring, we risk that we won't get that dispassionate. Our dispassionate uh, uh, adjudication of a ruling, our founders intended for our federal judges to be appointed for life precisely to immunize them from being influenced by popular appeals. This goes beyond popular appeals, this goes to the question of whether or not we as Americans can trust that the rulings that come down are a result of that dispassionate ability to look at the merits of the case and reach a ruling. Again, the president, the Department of Justice, and even prominent liberals, Planned Parenthood would do us all a favor if they publicly stated that they oppose this type of behavior. Instead, the signal is sent in the exact opposite direction. I'm a pro-lifer. I'm proud of that. But I'm going to tell you, I live and accept 
that our court system has the right to make that particular call. If it makes the call in a way that I don't appreciate, I use the political system in a lawful and legitimate way to change either uh, when vacancies appear or when um, there are opportunities to vote for a president or any of the other ways that our founders intended. This is the opposite of that. They're talking about court packing now. They're talking about uh, even using impeachment as a way of addressing how a ruling came down. Innocent parties, um, poor individuals, even wealthy individuals, count on our courts to be a neutral forum. What these individuals are doing and what the president is implicitly accepting is we don't need to have an impartial forum. Let's pressure them. Let's push them. That's dangerous. And that uh, tears at the fabric of our constitutional system. What's so astonishing to me or the elected representatives who seem to know nothing about the Constitution or the law. For example, you've got Vice President Harris, who stands before a crowd of people and says, how dare uh, the United States Supreme Court do this? Rashida Tlaib of the squad uh, saying that the Supreme Court didn't have the authority uh, to overturn Roe versus Wade. You know, as I mentioned in my remarks, maybe they ought to read the Constitution. Maybe they ought to read the the seminal case Marbury versus Madison, which gives the Supreme Court uh, the right and the authority to examine the constitutionality of acts by the executive branch, acts by the legislative branch. Of course, they have the power and the authority to do this. And what Sam Alito and the four other justices are saying is that um, this is the responsibility of the legislature. This is not our business. We're not saying no to abortion. What we're saying is if the people want a right to abortion, they can get their representatives to pass a law, their constitutional amendment or legislation to codify the right to abortion or the exact opposite of that. Um, and, you know, I, I see this as an exercise by the Supreme Court to confine themselves to their proper authority. And, you know, people, if you want to do this, that's how democracy works. Get your representatives to do this. Well, absolutely. Um, there's an old saying, those who live by the sword die by the sword. The left has for a generation sought to use our judicial system to achieve political outcomes that they are unable to achieve in the political arena. The founders of this great nation intended the lion's share of policy decisions to be a consequence of your ability, my ability, and our other citizens to influence and persuade each other. Even if I am on the minority side of a political choice, whether that's tax policy, whether that's crime policy, I understand and accept it because of my ability to engage and share my position 
and the ability of others who may disagree with me. What the left said for a generation is, that's hard work. We don't like that. We don't want to waste our time. We wish to short circuit the democratic process by getting justices to impose our narrow positions that have never been popular and apparently can never be popular. What has ended up happening with the Roe v. Wade decision and other uh, undemocratic um, rulings where they stepped out of their narrow constitutional lines has been to galvanize the public, has been to galvanize the American people. It is the Supreme Court's decision that in Roe v. Wade that has caused the two main parties in America to square off on opposite sides on this issue that has affected how people are nominated to the lower courts and the higher courts that has taken scarce energies and resources on both sides, left and right, to focus on this. This distortion of the legitimate use of the court's power has so manipulated our system that what you now see has been a dramatic change on the part of the American people who have been educated and have been persuaded in state legislature after state legislature. When the Supreme Court ultimately overturns Roe or dramatically undercuts Roe, what the left is going to see is they have hard work ahead and they have decades of work that they need to do precisely because they weren't willing to do that all along. Uh, finally, uh, you know, I I always watch uh, confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominees. And in the last three hearings, so much time was spent uh, by Democrats on the Judiciary Committee, hours and hours and hours um, trying to get the nominees to say, we'll never overturn a precedent such as Roe versus Wade. And now some of them are, some of the senators are saying, well, they lied. No, they didn't lie. What they did say was that, you know, precedent should be respected. But, um, and, and that's true. And, and precedent it builds on, on future cases. Precedent is fine and good until it's not. Uh, in the history of the United States Supreme Court, the justices have reversed themselves and overturned precedents, constitutional precedents, more than 145 times. So this, this notion that some are advancing now that a precedent like Roe cannot be overturned is ludicrous. The Supreme Court, when they realize that a prior court has made an egregious error uh, based on the Constitution or law, uh, has had the courage to right a wrong, to correct a mistake. And that's the proper function of the United States Supreme Court, isn't it? Well, absolutely. They should always be on a quest to be as close as is reasonably possible to make sure that they're vindicating the Constitution itself, not another person's interpretation. Precedent is important. Precedent is valuable. But a precedent that actually significantly deviates from the Constitution undermines the Constitution. 
Remember, the Constitution is actually the consensus of what Americans came together and agreed. We may modify our Constitution through the amendment process. We may fine-tune our Constitution by having statutes issued that flow from constitutional provisions. But that Constitution itself is continuing to be the valid exercise of the will of the American people. The 13th Amendment specifically protects the right of blacks and any other people in America from being placed into a status of involuntary servitude. To shift that, as a court might do, so that it no longer addresses that and it addresses other things, is to dramatically deviate from the consensus and the effort. Amending our Constitution isn't easy. But it is precisely because it's not easy that those constitutional provisions and terms are supposed to be vitiated. I welcome 145 times when the court overrules precedent so that it can stay closer to the actual Constitution and its meanings. Horace Cooper, senior fellow with the National Center for Public Policy Research, a lawyer, legal commentator who's taught constitutional law. Thank you so much for being with us on my podcast. Thanks very much. And that's The Brief. Thanks for listening. I'm Greg Jarrett.